Thank you, Mike. Uh, would you find a Bible, please? Because in a moment, I'm going to ask you to open it. Uh, but only in a moment. Uh, I want to uh, add to something that, uh, to what Jonathan uh, said uh, earlier. Because uh, I think that's probably the uh, third or fourth time I've seen uh, part of uh, that little clip. Um, and uh, whenever else I've seen it, uh, it looked fine. Um, but I suddenly see it here, and it's, it just, if I'm honest, it feels a bit cheesy. Um, it's obviously a selling video, and it, it feels a bit odd doing that in church. And um, uh, the price is enough to terrify anyone, 1595 But I wanted to recognize those, those challenges uh, on the way precisely uh, to still putting down a marker that... Uh, I don't think I've had any experience in my Christian life that has so changed me as a trip to Israel-Palestine. I was there for a while, and that was a privilege, but um, it it was quite extraordinary. And everyone gets their own thing from it. Um, uh, For me, uh, it it wasn't necessarily the kind of the, the, the building of Capernaum or buildings of Capernaum or whatever. It was simply walking physically, uh, around the spaces, and, and, and realizing that, that kind of, you, you go out from the um, Garden of Gethsemane, and, and you kind of uh, spit, and you hit the Dead Sea, practically. It, it's so close. There are all kinds of things that you just don't get uh, uh, without the possible uh, opportunity of, uh, of that kind of trip. So, uh, despite the price, and despite the slight cheesiness of the video. I want to, I want to stand full square uh, with Jonathan and with John Drake uh, uh, and others uh, putting this together. Uh, Natalie and I will be signing up before the end of the month um, uh, to go. Uh, I, 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 all I can say is it changed my life. Uh, so you decide uh, whether that's something for you. Anyway, let's, um, let's come to uh, tonight and let's pray. Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit. Lord God, we come to you tonight, and uh, I guess most of us uh, can come to you and say, Lord God, we want to be filled with the Spirit tonight. We want to be sent out from here as those who, uh, yes, have spoken to one another, Uh, Yes, have sung and made music. Yes, have given thanks to God. But also that we've understood the ways in which our behavior is to mark us more strongly than any badge uh, that we are the people, uh, the spirit-filled people of the living God. And we give that desire to you now as we come to your word. Amen. Well, do uh, 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 open to Ephesians. Uh, page 1,176. And yes, I know it's one of those passages, um, uh, but we'll get to the difficult bits later. We'll put them off as far long as possible. Because I think actually they become a lot easier if we try and understand the total package of what Paul is about. 
Uh, a week this coming Thursday, we will keep uh, the uh, American festival of Thanksgiving, because Natalie is American. And uh, I, perhaps because it's sort of something I've, I've married into, um, I actually get quite choked up about the American connection of our family, who, who after all can resist the compassion that there is on the poem that gave rise to the Statue of Liberty, addressed to other nations. Give me your huddled masses yearning to be free. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Or if I'm in the States for the 4th of July, I always find myself deeply touched by the history of the States and the, no, the nobility of Thomas Jefferson's claim embodied in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Again, it, it just gives me goosebumps. And that view, isn't it true that that view has conquered the world? The European Declaration of Human Rights followed it. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights says this, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And then this, this very week, David Cameron has been caught up in a dispute as to whether he should have gone to Sri Lanka because of that country's record on human rights. And I want us to grasp briefly just how this language has taken over our public thought and action. Because only once we've grasped that that is the water in which we swim, that that's the air that we breathe, will we really grasp the kind of punch in the guts that Ephesians delivers to us. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, submit. Here we are, we believe that we are born free and equal. And here is Paul saying, submit. It only takes a moment's thought to realize those cannot both be right. And it won't surprise you if I tell you that I reckon it was St. Paul that was right and Thomas Jefferson actually that was wrong. And I think in order to, to understand what's going on, we've really got to grasp the structure of what Paul says. And it's one of those times to give thanks for the fact that these passages about how to behave in the second part of Ephesians, they're not just randomly uh, slapped down as though Paul's thinking, oh, and another thing. They grow out of everything that he's set down for us in chapters 1 through to 3. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the structure of what Paul says, uh, very briefly, and then at the surprise of what he says. And it's only then that we'll start looking at some of the detail. Though I'm, I'm sure some of you are itching uh, for me to get to wives and husbands. So I need to start by picking up what Will had to say last week. We are not to get drunk with wine 
but to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled by the Spirit here in chapter 5, within Paul's argument, relates to everything he said about personal and social behavior in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Not doing this, not doing that, but being filled with the Spirit. But the structure of what he says works like this, as one long sentence. And the problem is that English doesn't like long sentences. Greek loves long sentences. Um, but uh, So the, the sentence in Greek works like this. Be being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. That's verse 21, verse 22. Wives to husbands. Submitting to one another is at the very heart of being filled with the Spirit. Mutual submission is a mark of the filling of the Spirit. And before we pass to the details, let's register that the structure of what he says overall generates a huge surprise, certainly in us, perhaps in the original reader. They operated in a world in which your social place was completely fixed and irreversible. There was someone over you who dominated you, and there was normally someone under you that you could dominate. Paul subverts that utterly, submit to one another. Now, we've got the reverse situation. It would have been a surprise to them with that fixed structure to be told submit to one another. We've got the reverse situation, and it's still a surprise to us. We believe that everyone is free and equal, that no one should dominate over anyone else, and Paul still subverts that utterly. Submit to one another. You can tell very quickly that there's something wrong with the uh, United Nations Declaration. It says human beings are endowed with conscience and reason and should act in brotherhood. Should. Who says? Where does that should come from? You can't help feeling that lurking in the background there's some ancient memory of an authority figure that they were terrified of naming to give force to that should. It is, of course, the ghost of Jefferson's phrase endowed by their creator with certain rights. The UN couldn't go there. And it's worth registering what Paul does with that whole pattern of expectation, which uh, uh, Jefferson was, was pulling this stuff straight from antiquity. So he may have been around in the 18th century, but he was going straight back to the classical period uh, where, where Paul is writing this. So it's the same argument, even though it's 18 centuries apart. Go back with me to the start of Ephesians. Page 1173. And let's ask the question, who is God at the start of Ephesians? Already in verse 2, he is not the creator, but the father. In verse 4, he is the one who chooses a people, the Jews as it turns out in the argument, before the creation. About the Gentiles, Paul is clear over the page at the beginning of chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses, transgressions and sins. 
So Paul's claim at the beginning of, Gen- of, uh, uh, the e- of Ephesians, Paul's claim is that our backgrounds, who we are as we come into the world, our backgrounds are marked not by equality, but by the rankest inequality. Equality for St. Paul, is in no respect whatsoever a factor that belongs to the creation. Because some were marked from before the creation uh, as God's people, the Jews, uh, while the Gentiles turned up and uh, were dead in their trespasses and sins. Instead, the very story of Ephesians that Paul has taken us through is how equality comes to be. It begins with that rank inequality of Jew and Gentile, and then in chapter 2 and verse 14, for he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, this is the point, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. That's where equality comes from. It is not creation, but redemption that establishes equality. And if you want to be really precise, that redemption was planned from before the creation. It's so tempting to be fooled by the mere date list, the apparent order of events as the creation comes first and then the fall and then the redemption. And we mustn't be fooled by that. The redemption is always the first thing in God's mind. And everything is always leading up to that. Redemption first, and creation then as the thing that has to happen to get us to redemption. If you want to use a a kind of, uh, adapt a biblical uh, image that you're probably familiar with, imagine a pot And you're starting off with nothing, but you want to make a pot. Well, you you might develop some skills and you might be able to make a pot, but it's not going to be a pot if you haven't got an oven to fire it in. And most people don't make the pot and then go and make an oven. They make the oven first. The pot is the point, but you've got to have an oven. Redemption is the point, but to get to a redemption, you've got to have a creation. Redemption is where it really begins in the mind of God. And that happens before creation. So Paul wants to insist on equality, yes, but because Jesus Christ has established that equality at the cross. And then even more amazing, Jesus Christ is risen, he is ascended as Lord on high, and that means that uh, he is Lord, we are not Lord, we are his servants. And that means that instead of claiming our equal rights, the distinctive mark of the Jew who has turned to Christ and the Gentile who has turned to Christ is that each decides willingly to serve the other, to submit to the other as the mark of the Holy Spirit. There wasn't equality. Now there is absolute equality because of Jesus. And the mark of our joy in that equality is that we immediately say, no, after you. Nothing else here will make sense 
unless we grasp what an affront it is, what an offence it, it is. It was true in Paul's day, and it's certainly true in ours. Voluntary submission was an offence when uh, submission was enforced, as it was in the Roman Empire, and voluntary submission remains an offence when submission has been abolished. Why, w- why, would you, why would you submit? Really, why would you do that? Unless Jesus Christ has gone to the cross to make that possible and to live differently. Well, let's get to the detail. Uh, uh, wives to husbands. Uh, chapter 5, uh, again. Submit, uh, be filled with the Spirit, singing, speaking, giving thanks, submitting wives to husbands. The point being uh, that, where, that wives and husbands, and then in a moment, because he does eventually finish the sentence and starts a new sentence with husbands and wives, both of those are governed by verse 21, submit to one another. Both of them are governed by submit to one another. Well, first of all, I think we just let's put down the marker. Uh, let's assume he means what he says. Let's assume he means wives submit to husbands and husbands love your wives. What is the offence that is caused for us in our time in those verses? Well, at one level, it's obvious. We, we, we know of stories of abuse and perversion and distortion. We know uh, not only of particular cases of abuse, but we know of cultures, sub-Christian cultures, that have been uh, in place over time uh, where women have been told that it's their place to be a doormat for Jesus. Uh, and, and the fact of that uh, is a matter of repentance, uh, but it's, it's just there, it's a fact. The real offense, I suspect, here is that Paul is saying we have no liberty to step outside what is given to us in these roles. I have no liberty to decide to take on the role of my wife, nor she mine. And yet in our day, it is the very definition of human rights that we have self-determination. We should be able to decide to do whatever is possible. If it is possible, uh, physically possible, then it ought to be open to us to decide, to change our role, and, and do whatever that thing may be. It might be that you want to wear uh, his or her clothing. It might be that you're a woman wanting to have a baby at the age of 60. We want to do whatever we can do, because everyone in our day should have equal rights to self-determination, and that is simply not the case in the Bible. So as much as the issue may appear to be uh, submission itself, I'm, I'm suspecting that most of us have, have heard, I'll say it quickly, but I suspect most of us have, have now heard and absorbed that wives submitting to husbands as to the Lord is one uh, 
direction. But husbands loving their wives, just as Christ loved the church, is another direction, and each is as powerful as the other. Each requires as much submission to the other as the other one does. There's, there's no um, uh, final asymmetry. They're differently expressed, but there's no final asymmetry. They do fit as submitting to one another. Now, I'm assuming that we no longer have to uh, keep arguing that one. And if you think I'm wrong and, and that's a problem for you, then by all means, uh, pick it up. But I suspect the deep problem here is this sense that there is a, a different expression, that there is a sense in which uh, uh, wives can only do wifely things here, husbands can only do husbandly things here, that it's not open to them to, to swap. And that is the truth. That for Paul, as he is writing, he is clear that when we take on, when we choose these roles for ourselves, written into the roles, written into the script for these roles, are certain structures so that when we take those structures and go on to submit ourselves, then Ephesians 5, 22 through to uh, 20, uh, no, to 30, are, uh, are, are what the result looks like. And I'm not going to go through all the, the, the details of uh, what's, what's there. But when, by the time you've got to verse 32, you're again reminded that this is not a random set of social instructions. What has Ephesians been about? It has been Jesus Christ going to the cross to establish one new people called the church. So if, in verse 32... Paul is saying this is a profound mystery marriage, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's absolutely on the home territory of Ephesians. The very structure of human society based in male-female relationships is only ever meant as an illustration of the more important thing of the relationship between Christ and his church. And then in detail, he kind of goes back to him and says, oh, yeah, however, um, uh, yeah, just to remind myself, uh, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Then we go on. Uh, Children and parents. Uh, The word here, uh, obey, is the word obey. It's a different word from the word submit. It's quite clear. And odd as it may sound, it was uh, this gives children much more dignity than they were ever given in the ancient world. Because it's actually treating them as those who have a choice. It's saying, uh, you are are responsible agents, even though you are children, and what you are to do is obey. Uh, To obey, in a sense, because God has told you to, not to obey because you'll get slapped if not, which would have been the dominant uh, mode of the day. If you don't obey, I'm not going to explain to you why she'd obey, just do it. Uh, Children in the Roman world particularly were utterly and completely in the power of their father. Um, A Roman son, a son, never came of age. Not at 14, not at 16, not at 18, not at 21. He never came of age till his father died. And until his father died, the father had the power of life and death and slavery and total punishment over his son. There was no human right uh, for a son 
even a son, let alone a daughter, in the Roman world. I have to say, at this time when Paul is writing, it is getting easier. Slaves are finding the money uh, to, uh, to free themselves. But so it's very unusual, uh, it's in fact unknown, for children to be taken seriously enough to be addressed at all. And then, uh, fathers, do not exasperate your children, verse 4. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I'm not going to fall into the sort of anecdotage of telling stories of my own uh, fathering. Um, uh, But I do want to draw attention to that last part of the verse. Uh, Some of you are married... Uh, some of you uh, may become married, may get married. And it's quite... uh, One of the things to hang on to because that verse is there is don't pass the training and instruction of your children in the Lord over to the local church. Don't say, okay, well, we've got a family life, and it's kind of broadly Christian. Oh, but there's that kind of uh, telling the Bible stories thing, and they go, well, the church can do that. Don't do that. It's quite deliberate uh, that Paul says, bring them up, you bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I don't suppose he had any, any choice but to say fathers, uh, because it wasn't uh, considered in those days uh, a role except for the father. Uh, but I do think, if I may say so, uh, that I notice a lot of Christian families in which the training and instruction of the Lord of the children is left in the hand of the mothers. And I want to say to those who are fathers now and may become fathers in time to come, no, take it seriously. It's your job. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's for you to do. Equally, if you're a mother or might become a mother, don't rush in too quickly to take it off the father. Uh, in, In any domestic environment, most men will tell you they've only got to sit back for half a second and the wife has rushed in uh, to, to, to deal with it uh, quickly. My wife is laughing at me now because she knows this is true. Um, the, uh, um, uh, we had neighbours uh, some time ago and uh, they had four boys and the wife used to tear her hair out because of the mess that the boys would leave. And their husband's argument was always the same. Look, the boys will, te- will clean up. It's just that you notice it earlier than they do. So just live with it a little longer and they will get to it. You don't have to rush in to do it. And similarly, uh, uh, you don't have to rush in to train the children. Uh, Fathers, get on with it. Mothers, let them. Uh, Finally, in this uh, section, slaves and masters. The summary that we want to take from this is there in verse 9. You know that he who is both their master, that's the slave's master, addressing masters at this point, and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism uh, with him. That's the point. One master. It's not in Christ, well, uh, you're the master, you're the slave. That may be a temporary role that you're called to, uh, but the reality is you've both got a master. So just be very careful, because he is uh, watching Serve wholeheartedly, therefore, verse 7, as if you were serving the Lord, not not men. 
because you know the Lord will reward everyone for, what he, for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. One master. So don't think that uh, you're the only master in the picture. Recognize, if you're a master, that the slave is your fellow servant and there is no favoritism. Now, of course, anyone who wanted to interpret any of those three sets of relationships and find a warrant for abuse uh, would be so far out of order. These are, I think, Christian relationships. It's possible that the slave and master one may have a touch of uh, the slave being told to obey earthly masters with respect and fear as you would obey Christ, whether or not your master is a Christian. But it doesn't say that. It's possible. But the assumption still seems to be that both of you understand the relationship with Christ. So I don't think we can matrix it too swiftly onto all employer-employee relationships. And one of the concerns I have about this passage is that we rush too quickly to say, okay, um, wives and husbands, that's about us. What do we do about what, if we're a wife or a husband? Children, parents, that's about us. What do we do? Uh, slaves and masters, what's that? Oh, that's obviously employment. We go to the detail. And it may well be wrong to say everywhere of this passage, this equals that. The real challenge is to transform, is to see transformed every relationship in Christ. So two suggestions to finish with. One's evangelistic, and one's about our own behavior. I, I, it's so common now, that this air that we breathe, the water in which we swim, that I think we do often now hear glib talk, that something, or, something is justified along the lines of, whoa, it's your human rights, isn't it? And let's not fall for the assumption that that is in any way Christian. Jefferson was a deist. He believed in a God, but not in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he went through the Bible and took out all those awkward miracle stories. Human rights are not in themselves Christian. So whenever we hear those glib assumptions, that gives us an opportunity to say, human rights... Who says? And if we get attacked and the response comes back, well, don't you believe in human rights then? Then you've got an open door to say, I don't believe we're born with human rights now. But I do believe that equality and freedom have come about in the world because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then you're away. One can only feel sorry for those who are flapping around in the world as it is are faced with uh, uh, these appalling domination structures and then have to go to the complete opposite of of human rights. And it's our task to go and say, no, 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 no. let's look at how this comes to be, this equality business. The other suggestion I, I, I have is behavioral. Wherever you are tempted to stand on your human rights, that is the wrong place to stand. The details are going to take weeks of study. You could spend a week just on the wives and husbands, a week just on slaves and and masters. But we're not going to do that tonight. The one thing I want to grab hold of is the connection that runs through chapter 5, hinging around uh, verse 21. Are you being filled with the Spirit? And as Will reminded us last week, that's a command. 
It's not a prayer. Where are you being called today, tonight, to rethink a key relationship as it is in Christ and perhaps for the first time learn to submit to one another? Of course the world is not interested in a perverted and abusive, slavish fawning. But the world notices when any human being gives up his or her rights in order to promote the honor of another. And a final thought. Uh, For those of you who think this is all a bit wimpy, again, look at the structure in the text. Just look again, literally, look again at chapter 5. If you think all this submitting is still a bit wet, if you want to discover power and dominance and authority, well, don't worry, your time is coming. You see, next week we get to discover not where we're to submit, but where we're to be strong. Look at verse 10 of uh, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. There is quite enough demonic authority in the world for us to show all kinds of fight and struggle and assertion and power. There's lots there. Don't worry. You don't need to exercise it on one another. And I think that's really interesting that Paul, having established what Christ did on the cross, then came to us and said, now, what you need to learn, guys, is submit to one another. But over here, where there's demonic authorities, have a go. We seek to dominate one another. But Paul says there is one worth dominating once we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that one is a very unholy spirit indeed. But that's for next week. Don't believe the human rights distortion. Take it captive for Christ. Do behave with a spirit-filled submission and release one another for Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, you came to make a people for Jesus, to create a people of brothers and sisters who would be like Jesus. And we repent tonight of those times when we have stood on our rights, when we have insisted on our place, and quite flatly refused inside to submit to anybody else, especially, as we look at this passage, those who may be close to us. Give us the gift of repentance. And let us be filled more and more by your Holy Spirit. Amen.